what's going on? How you been? Just hanging out. Not a lot of excitement. Went to my family reunion Sunday. That was fun. I'm the vice president of the family reunion committee now. You have a family reunion committee? Oh, my God. We do the Pledge of Allegiance. I have what? no idea why. It's really bizarre. And oh then we God. elect officials, and I don't know why. We have a treasurer. <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm new to this whole thing. There's the treasurer? Uh-huh, a secretary that records the notes. So we talk about, like, people's marriages. And granted, there's, like, 30 people there. Oh, my and goodness. I see 90% of them throughout the year now that I live back here. Mm-hmm. So there's it's it's bizarre. But it's the Polish tradition. This is the Polish side of my family. So there's lots of Polish food there. Well, that's good. So, Do you have some pierogi? Okay, here's what's funny. Oh, my God. They're going to kill me because... So three people made the palupkas. The cookies? Palupkas? No, they're like a cabbage roll, a rolled cabbage roll. Oh. Like three people made those and nobody made pierogies. I was not happy. Oh, yeah. So they need to pick what? up the pace. So as vice president, I'm going to make sure no one brings duplicate because we had three mac and cheeses. Well, that's we never had, a bad thing. It's not. Of course, I went for my mom's because hers is the best. But so it was interesting. Always fun. That is fascinating. Yeah. I'm going to need to know a lot more about this. One of the people there, it's their first reunion, and they were like, yeah, I had to look up the Pledge of Allegiance because I haven't done it since I was in elementary school. <laughs> and I was like, most of us haven't, except here. They don't give you, like, a bulletin that goes down, you know, what is going to happen with the pledge all spelled out so nobody's misquoting Oh, my it. God. I should totally do a PowerPoint presentation next year. <laughs> that would be awesome. But, yeah, so... That was mine. How about you? Oh, you know, it was a weekend, which means I drank too much and ate like shit. And, you know, now it's Tuesday that feels like Monday because I kind of carried over my weekend into Monday. (laughs) Well, yesterday was my fiance's, my ex-fiance, I guess, seventh death anniversary. Yeah, that's a weird thing, though, because the only reason that he's... wouldn't be your fiance is because he died and when you yes. say x it implies that it was broken i know i don't know what to say because i'm, I'm remarried you know i'm married your now. late fiance there you go oh that's a good one late fiance that's a good one i never know what to call him <laughs> yeah so, that's always a rough day steve. <laughs> yeah steve so yeah. hats off to steve yes up in heaven, partying on, watching down on us all, going, oh, my God, what is wrong with that girl? Yep. <laughs> Other than that. Probably got a lot to say <laughs> about a lot of things. He had a lot to say. Yeah, he probably does. <sighs> but other than that, I'm cool. just well, here. Still looking for a job. So <laughs> any of our listeners that live in Pennsylvania, hit me up. <laughs> you have a job. It's the podcast. That's right. And one of these days, I'm going to get you to edit. I yeah, just yeah. haven't I haven't done it because I know it's going to take five hours of my life to explain. I get that. I'll just have to come out and visit so you can teach me. Yes, please do. I even went to my old boss in San Diego, and I was like, do you have anything I could do remotely? Like, I can't see nowadays that I can't. Like, I'll come out every quarter on my dime to meetings because then I have a reason to go to San Diego every quarter. Yeah. Well, you've got a place to stay, so you wouldn't have to pay for a hotel. So I'm all for it. I just wish they would get on board. Jerks. Fuckers. <laughs> How dare they? So, um, yeah, what are we talking about? Talking about, well, I'm talking about haunted mirrors because Jen said we're doing mirrors. Dude, so. I found the creepiest fucking story. I'm excited. I'm excited to tell you. I oh, don't know. Cool. I'm sure you've heard around it like about it but it's like maybe not the details so well at first I was like so I I'm not gonna lie I started this morning after I had a horrible migraine and I was like okay let's look into this and it was actually really super interesting I found a couple really good tales I think you'll like and some facts about mirrors in general first I want to say when I was looking up haunted mirrors I found this website called two for some reason, I did my font really freaking small today, and I'm going to hate myself for it the rest of the podcast. It's called twowaymirrors.com. So what they do, they actually sell two-way mirrors. 
for security reasons and protection, I can't imagine in your home why you would need a two-way mirror. Yeah. That's Maybe really- you have an interrogation room in your house. I mean, <laughs> they're your like, kid packed up. For your protection, like, why would that protect me in my home? <laughs> Maybe so you could see if you have, like, an elderly parent that lives with you and, like, if they fall in the bathroom. I I don't know. I don't know. I'm stretching my imagination with this question. That's a good one. I mean, anyway, they have some really cool facts about mirrors and some really cool websites to check out about haunted mirrors. So thank you, twowaymirrors.com. Just a little background. I thought this was interesting. So, um, you know, when you break a mirror, it says you get seven years bad luck. Yes. Right? Why seven yes. years? So Because your cells all turn over and you're a whole new person after seven years. That's correct. Actually, see, I did not know that. It is the first ancient Romans believed that your soul regenerated every seven years. They believed that when you looked into a mirror, you not only saw your physical self, you also saw your soul. You know what's interesting about that is the ancient Egyptians had this seven-year thing. And then, like, biologically, on a cellular level, I mean, all your cells are changing at different rates, right? So, like, your liver and your kidneys and your skin and all that stuff. But you basically, everything has cycled through every seven years. So it's almost like they knew that without knowing it. Ancient aliens much? Somebody came back and gave them that information. That is, that's, that's really interesting. So when you pick a mirror, you get seven years bad luck because they're waiting for a whole new soul to regenerate. And since they don't know where you are in the cycle, they say seven years. But if you ever break a mirror and you want to break that seven-year cycle, there are seven ways to do that. Oh, tell me them because I'm klutz. I break everything. <laughs> so you can throw salt over your left shoulder because, you know, you throw salt over your left soldier, soldier, <laughs> shoulder. <laughs> To uh, the devil's on your left side, which is stupid because I'm left-handed and no, he's not. But whatever. You can spin in a circle three times. You can grind That's the it. mirror. Yeah. That's I it. Barely, spin. Yeah. You can Clock grind ways? the mirror. Counterclockwise. <laughs> I need details here. I don't know. I didn't click the link. Sorry. Um, you can grind the mirror into a fine powder. You can reuse the broken mirror, which would probably be a little difficult. You can toss the broken mirror into a south-running stream. You can blacken the mirror with fire. Or you can touch a tombstone with one shard of the glass that you broke. Any tombstone? Says a tombstone. A tombstone. Go out in the backyard where you buried your dog and... (laughs) Well, yeah, if you have a tombstone, why not? Tombstone is a tombstone. Um, So many cultures cover mirrors after a person dies. In case you ever wondered why, because I did, I'm going to let you know. So, the most popular reason is because the deceased wander the earth for three days after dying. If they see themselves in a mirror, they could get trapped. And that's why people cover mirrors. But there's different reasons culturally. So, in the Jewish culture, when you're sitting Shiva, you cover the mirrors in your home to protect the living and the dead. They believe that demons are attracted to homes where tragedy has just occurred. So, that's why... In the Jewish culture, they cover the mirrors. In Chinese culture, they believe if you carry a corpse past a mirror, they will become a ghost. So that's why in that culture, they cover the mirrors. Hmm. In German and Dutch culture, they believe if you saw your reflection after a loved one has passed, you will be next. Oh. So we don't want to be next to die. So that's why. I mean, that would really just imply a reflection. Uh-huh. Like, don't look at the toaster when you're making your toast in the morning because you right. could be next. <laughs> you could be next to toast. That's yeah. funny. I can think about that. I don't know if it's a mirror, if you can look at a toaster or a stream of water. I don't know. Or a, the back of a spoon. My mind is wandering now. Well, this has nothing to do with mirrors, but I still thought it was really interesting. So a lot of times when you cover the mirrors, you also stop the clocks. And there's reasons for those. One is that you stop the clock so that mourners can stay longer and they're not worried about time. Okay. Vegas casino style. Right. Another one is you stop the clocks as a way to allow the soul of the newly deceased to move on without worrying about time. Because I'm sure when you're dead, your biggest worry is like, oh, my God, how much time do I have? (laughs) Your time's Uh, up. 
He was yeah, gone. <laughs> exactly. Like, at this point, time is irrelevant. There's a belief that the clock, if it's not stopped, all those who are made in the house will have bad luck. Hmm. So, um, also, if a clock is allowed to continue moving, this indicates, or I'm sorry, this invites the spirit of the deceased to remain in the home forever, just to haunt it for the rest of time. The last reason, and the most logical explanation, is when a person dies, you know, back in the day, a lot of, you know, that was rural when someone died, you didn't know the time of death, you needed the time of death, they would stop the clock so they would remember the time of death, and it would be there. That's mm-hmm. the most probable explanation of why we probably stop clocks. And now we do it because our parents did it, our grandparents did it. We don't do that in my family. Just I, so you know. I don't either. I have too many clocks in my house. Well, no, I would have to pull circuit breakers. How do you stop the cable clock? How do you stop the phone on your clock? Your phone on your clock. <laughs> <laughs> clock on your phone you know so yeah i'm sure it was probably stopped just to mark the time of death in real life because they had one clock you know yeah so so i have a couple stories about haunted mirrors so i'm going to start with this tale of a haunted mirror in farnsworth house in gettysburg i did not see this house when i was there i mean i'm probably past it but this tale this tale is told by amy brony and adam berry who have a show called kindred spirits on the travel channel so they had been to this house numerous times to, you know, do paranormal investigations. And they've stayed overnight. So they've done all this stuff because Gettysburg is just such a vortex of hauntings. Yeah. So they got a call from, I'm assuming it's the owners, Steve and Kayla. I'm assuming they're the owners. I don't know. I tried yeah, to kind of look at I got their last name, but I didn't get their first names when I tried to look it up. So whatever. These two people called about this entity in their basement. Who'd been getting really physically aggressive with women tourists and tour guides. They're like, you know, the tour guides for the house. Hmm. The were convinced it was coming from a mirror they had in their basement. So they called um, Amy and Adam, called these antique dealer that they know, and they found out that the frame of the this mirror is from the 1900s and that it was probably a painting and the frame was around a painting and because the glass for the mirror is actually was manufactured in the 50s and 60s. Hmm. So they just used a different frame. Yes. So they just used the frame, took out the painting for whatever reason. So they had bought this mirror from an estate sale of the Collins family. So they started investigating the Collins family they found they had many, many children. This Collins family, apparently they had a buttload of kids. They found one of the sons, Clarence Collins, who had gotten into a lot of trouble for trafficking women and using them for prostitution. What? He was also involved in a murder of a Gettysburg tour guide in the early 1900s. Whoa. So they kind of assume it's him. And he was also known to be a very good artist, a very good painter. So they're assuming that he probably painted the original painting that was in that frame. And being that it, he, this haunting appears to affect tour guides and women in general, I couldn't find out like if he pushes them, if he shoves them. It just said that he was, or this entity was very physically aggressive, hmm. women and tour guides. So. So clearly dying didn't make him any less of a douchebag. Oh, okay. So that's, thank you. That's where I lost my spot. So apparently there's, they believe, Amy and Adam, and probably millions of other people. I don't know. I've never heard this theory before. Well, it makes sense. They believe that any entity that, if you were a dick in real life, you're going to be a dick ghost. You know, you're not going to change That's your correct. personality just because you become a ghost, which I guess I've just never really thought about. But it makes sense. You know, a nice person in real life probably isn't going to be a dickhead ghost. They also believe that entities know each other. So like a para, like a paranormal Facebook, there's like the super highway of info that paranormal know other paranormal people. Okay, but isn't that a little bit, I feel like that tracks in everything that I've heard about, because like psychics, when they start to have connections, it's almost like they're tapping into this big bowl of spirit, like you know? Yeah, like, like they're trying to like weed out the one person that they're trying to communicate with. And there's just like a bunch of other things that are moving around. Like, like in the movie ghost with 
Whoopi Goldberg, you know, and oh, she's like trying to kind of sort things out. And there's just like a bunch of randoms around. I guess I just never thought about it. It's it's just it was a strange concept to me the way they explained it. But I have no idea. Right. I have no clue. So the house across the street whoops, is a haunted orphanage. Like I said, everything in Gettysburg is haunted. So just assume that. Okay. okay. Everything in Gettysburg is haunted. So the Jenny Wade house is also right down the street or on the same street. And that's, you know, the first civilian, the only civilian killed in the Civil War. So it's the house that she was killed in. So they go over to this orphanage and they're asking, hey, do you know who this is? They didn't get anything. They just got this like weird anomaly of this tall figure who apparently grabbed Amy. And then they went over to the Jenny Wade house. I keep hitting everything and making noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> so they go to Jenny Wade's house and they're asking, like, do you know who's haunting the Farnsworth house? Because it's a new entity. They've been there before. They've investigated. This mayor has never been haunted. So why all of a sudden? So they're asking, do you know who this is? And they had an EVP recorder, and it clearly says, and I can put the recording on our page, it clearly says, mirror. Oh. So they were like, oh, so it really is the mirror. But, I mean, they kind of assumed it was the mirror, but whatever. They had to be dramatic about it to make a show, right? Yeah. So they asked these paranormal object specialists to come by, and they do this thing called psychomantia, which is where you tilt a mirror towards you at an angle where you can't see yourself, but you can still see into the mirror. So you, you set up this mirror, you're in this total black and darkened room, and you light one candle, and that's the only light you have, and you stare into this mirror and cool. see what you see. I know, that sounds really creepy to me. Yeah, it does. So there's like five of these people on this panel, right? So they don't talk. They wait until whatever time period, 30 minutes, an hour. I don't know what it was. And then they kind of compare notes. So two of them have seen this gray mist, and two of them saw a man's face. Amy handed a paper with multiple pictures of old guys from, like, the 1900s of the mm -hmm. Collins family and said, did you see any of them? And this uh, paranormal object specialist immediately pointed to Clarence Collins and said, that's the man I saw in the mirror. So the paranormal. And that's who they assumed that yes. it was anyway, right? Yeah. Right. And they had never told him that. They had never given him an inclination. We think we know what it is. We just want you to look into this mirror. Mm -hmm. So they ended up taking the mirror. And that ended the whole entity problem and attacking people at this house, this Farnsworth house. I think it might be the people in my next story that took the mirror, but I couldn't I couldn't find it. But this one's really creepy. This is my, my second and my last story. This is called The Dark Mirror. And this is from uh, weekinweird.com. So this woman who goes, who goes by Sarah, she's anonymous. She says her mom went to the Psychic Expo and purchased a black mirror. So her mom goes to the Psychic Expo, which I've been to a few of them. You know, it's a big... Like convention center or like the Scott Wright's museum, not museum, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. She really wanted a mirror to do scrying on. She It was one of the new hobbies she wanted to try. What is that? So, scrying is, um, it's kind of like looking into a crystal ball. You're trying to look into a mirror to see the future, a body of water, crystals. So it's called okay. scrying. Okay. So Sarah noticed every time she called her mom, she was depressed. She was kind of vacant, and she talked about impending doom all the time. Hmm. So Sarah confronted her mom about her personality change, and her mom confided that she hadn't been able to scry on this mirror, but it was simply evil, and she broke down in tears. Oh. So Sarah took the mirror, put a black cloth over it, and took it to the owner's of the Traveling Paranormal Museum of Greg and Dana Newkirk, which they own the doll Ruby we talked about in the Haunted Dolls. Okay. So they own a bunch of objects, and they actually say they don't get any money for this. So they go to, like, these paranormal conventions. Um, so different, like, haunted places they'll go when there's kind of like a festival, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. They don't charge to look at their objects. So obviously this must not be their career. It's I'm going to say like a hobby, but they have over 500 objects and Greg will tell you like 90% of them don't do shit. They're not haunted. He's like, but those like five, 10% are pretty crazy. So 
Sarah goes and gives it to him, tells him the background. He's not expecting a lot from it. What's kind of funny is you would think when you're a paranormal object collector, you would look in the mirror, right? But he refuses. He's like, I'm just not going there. Because he's smart. Right. He really is smart, quite honestly. He knows shit. Yeah, he does. And he's like, I'm not taking any chances. So they go to their first stop on their, their next whatever, festival, whatever. They seem to be in Pennsylvania and Ohio, so I should go check them out sometime. Yeah. So they display it in their next stop, which is the Perry Hill Battlefield. It's in support of Nick Groff, who is from Ghost Adventures. Anyway, so Dave's explaining to everyone about what this object is, how this lady walked in. So it's covered in a cloth, right? So it's up to you. If you want to stare at it, you can. So, you know, a few people are like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. So this lady walks up. She lifts a veil. She stares at it for 30 seconds. And then she starts screaming. She, She claims she saw her decomposing corpse looking back at her. And she said, it's a dark mirror. I shouldn't have done that. And I have to go pray. And she oh, took was off. she on acid? See, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I was debating on to bring that up. If you've ever been on any kind of hallucinogenic mushrooms, acid, if you look into a mirror, your face That's will just... the dis- number one rule is you don't look in, mirror. in mirrors when you're tripping. You it don't. Distort you. It will it'll freak you out. It is. It's, yes. it's, a, it's a rabbit hole for sure. So she goes and prays, I guess. So then they started calling it the dark mirror. So news spread around this festival about this mirror. So those who had the courage to lift the cloth, like my husband would be the one, um, they saw these strange visions, warped faces, or just got a general sense of dread. So later in the evening, a woman put her palm on the surface, and then she spent two hours trying to violently clean it off. It would not come off no matter what. Her imprint of her palm. So she threatened to break the mirror, and all of a sudden it disappeared in front of, like, all these people. It just vanished. What she'd been trying to get. Yes. Okay. I'm like, not the mirror. That didn't disappear. Like, it's noped out. Bye. (laughs) Just totally vanished in front of everyone. When she threatened to break the mirror, it was like, oh, shit, she's serious. I better back off. Like I said, the owner never wanted to use a glass, whatever. So a month later, he took it to the Pennhurst Asylum in Pennsylvania, which is one of the places we want to ghost hunt. It's supposed to be, like, super haunted, but it's kind of. I just haven't got around to it yet. We'll get there. So before the doors opened, a woman claiming to be a skeptic looked into the mirror. She said she looked into the mirror, saw her reflection, and her mouth in the mirror was whispering to her, but her real mouth wasn't moving at all. And, like, people saw this. Like, her mouth wasn't moving, but her spirit form reflection, her mouth was moving and talking to her. Whoa. Another large, imposing man heard about the mirror, and he walked over, like, I'm not scared of anything. He pulled off the veil. That was Christian. Yeah, it was Christian. I have to be honest. He started staring into it. He staggered backwards, almost dropped the mirror, and started screaming a bunch of obscenities. It might just be my husband. The man said he watched another person who looked exactly like him peer from behind his reflection and walk away. Oh, my God. So, uh, throughout the day, people that held the mirror said they felt electricity shoot through them. So much that it made their arms sore and they'd be rubbing them, like just touching the frame. Another woman described feeling and tasting blood fill her mouth. Ew. Yeah, super ew. Another investigator who was there at this paranormal festival asked if she could be alone with the mirror in one of the rooms in the asylum to do some experiments. She came back. I vote she never returned. She did return. <laughs> She returned 30 minutes later with wide eyes telling everyone how she watched people who were not there. It was just her alone in this room, milling around the empty room. Okay, what was her credibility? Why did she get to take this mirror alone? How did they know that she wasn't going to, like, run off with it or break it? Or I'm guessing they knew who she was because this was, like, a paranormal. Like, it was Nick Groff, was it? No, it wasn't. But it was a paranormal. They probably all know each other because it was a festival or, you know. Like an expo? Yeah, exactly. Kind of, you know, yeah, just a little thing they do. So I'm I'm guessing they knew her and trusted her. It wasn't just like you and I walked up like, dude, of course I would never do that. I don't want to be alone anywhere. Can I have some alone time with this haunted fucking mirror? No, no, thank you. You'll never hear me ask that. No. So she said she was in there and she's looking in the mirror. And as she's looking in the mirror, there's all these people milling around. 
But, you know, she turns around, there's no one in there with her. It's just her. But in this mirror, there's all these people. So, um, so the couple returned it to their home, put the covered mirror in its usual spot. He then noticed his two cats were sitting on the same chair in a trance. He said they never sat in the same chair. But both cats were sitting in the chair. All of a sudden, the veil had fallen off the mirror, and they were just staring into it. So he put the mirror back on, or the, the sheet, the veil, whatever. And they took off running, and they would never come near it again. They wouldn't go in the same room with this mirror. They would do nothing with this mirror. Actually, they were found dead the next day. No, they were not. They lived just fine. But, so, they noticed every time they came in the living room, all of a sudden, it's always the, I don't know what to call it, the sheet, the veil, it's gone. It's always on the floor. So they had this um, motion-activated camera that they got Drunk when they were... mirror is just taken off its clothes every night. So I guess they um, also investigate Bigfoot. So they had this motion-activated camera. So they're like, okay, we're going to find out how this thing's falling off. Because we're securing yeah. it, and it keeps falling off. So they put this camera up. Three out of the seven nights, it uncovered itself. And every time they tried to read the camera, the memory card was completely empty. Like, it didn't pick up the cat's motion, even though they know the cats went by there. It would pick up the motion, lights, air, nothing. Did they get a different camera? Was that camera bunk? So they said that um, on the seventh night, when they checked the SD card, they found that it had been corrupted. That every attempt to make the card fails. Like, it had only had 100 megabytes of space used, and it would show that it was totally full, but they could not access it. Like, no matter what they did, it would just, hmm. it just didn't work. They could never get it falling off, because it would just, but on the days it didn't fall off, they'd have the whole thing. They'd have, you know, the cats or lights or something else moving, it would pick up. But it never would pick up on the days, the nights that it fell off on its own. I cannot believe that these people are voluntarily living with this thing. Right? Like, so, the, <laughs> so the next event they had was at the Ohio State Reformatory. It was for the Journey of Hope fundraiser. So instead of people seeing their corpse, they claimed to see this black mass like sitting over their left shoulder. Or they saw the reflection aged 40 years. Oof. Which would be really kind of crazy. So David Brock from Paramania Radio asked him to sit down live with this mirror. So Dave took it in his hand on the air, and you can listen to it. You can find it. It's David Brock, um, Haunted Mirror. You can find it and watch it and listen to it live. And he's holding it, and he starts screaming, holy shit. He said he saw his reflection had distorted, and a twisted grin was across his face, like kind of like a Joker face. Mm-hmm. He covered up the mirror and refused to look at it again. So currently, they're having a lot of, or not, this was in 2015, I think this article was written. Um, they've had a lot of issues with the mirror. It started <laughs> triggering their other haunted objects. So, like, their haunted paintings started flying off the wall more frequently. They had a charred Ouija board in its glass display that the Platchet kept moving on its own. Like, they'd hear it sliding around on its own at night. So it's it just never, an instigator. Yes. It's kind of it's kind of the asshole bad boy. It's of the Ready to party and take its clothes off and get everybody rowdy. And I mentioned Ruby. Ruby has disappeared since they got this. They can't. Last I've looked, they have not been able to find Ruby. And they think that. Is she hiding? So now they put the dark mirror covered in it, wrapped in a black blanket with a rosary on it and they lock it in a chest and they haven't had any problems. All the other objects stopped acting up. Wow. So that's some stories about haunted mirrors. Goodness. I'm with you. I mean, they don't even make money off it. They don't charge to look at their objects when they go to these events, but yet you keep them in your home. <laughs> yeah. Yet you won't look at it yourself. So you know enough not to do that. That just seems really reckless and irresponsible. He said that when they got that, this mirror, they thought they would have to change their disclaimers, like what you have to sign, like if bad shit happens. They started Mm -hmm. worrying about it. (laughs) You know, how liable are we if this thing attacks somebody? 
So oh I'll just find this paranormal show and go see it. Yeah, that would be that would be crazy. I don't. I'm not, I'm not gonna look in the mirror, but I'll make my husband do it. Oh no! You know, whatever he brings home comes to your home. It doesn't come home though. That's as far as we know. This does yeah, not. You don't know. That's a good point. You're right. Why fuck with it, right? <laughs> Why bring up any more bad juju? I'm pretty. That's the motto of my life with all of your, all of your haunting stuff is why fuck with it? Just it's why? Not, it's it's not a bad story to follow. Okay. All right. So story to, story. I'm super excited now. Uh, just to preface this, I got a lot of this from the Chicago Reader, and I'll mention the article that was the original article. Uh, that was written in 1980-something. I'll reference it later. But So this is the story of Ruthie Mae McCoy. Have you heard of that name before? Uh-uh, not that I know of. Okay. So Ruthie Mae McCoy was 52 years old. She was living in the housing unit called Grace Abbott, which was the projects in Chicago. And she was living there because she couldn't really hold a job down because she had mental illness. And when she was in her 20s, she was diagnosed as having paranoid schizophrenic mental disorder. So she was living in an apartment there uh, and living off of Social Security because she was she just couldn't hold a job. Her apartment was forty six dollars a month. Holy crap. Yeah. Well, because it's the projects. Right. And this is a horrible place to live like it's run by gangs. Police don't go there. I'll kind of get into it, but like she should have just been able to live there for free. But anyway, this is in the eighties. You said, right? Yeah. So she had just been given a, she had applied for more money, right? She was getting like $154 a month or something like that for social security. So she was, I mean, beyond poverty. Like she's, you know. Right. She's so world country living it. Yeah. So she she started going to the community center. Um, she was going to, you know, kind of the public, uh, the public help for people who are about to be homeless. You know, that she's getting information on how to kind of better her situation from this center that's giving her help for her mental illness. There's like counselors and that sort of thing. So she kind of got into this community there and they were like, you need more money. Like you need, cause she just kept saying, I have to get out of this place. I have to get out of the projects. Like I, I, I need to go, you know, this is not the place for me, blah, blah, blah. So she had applied for, and then was approved for her social security to be up to $340 per month. So like big baller, but because the social security administration or whatever you call it, they decided to, you know, make that retroactive from when she applied. So she had just gotten a big kind of chunk of change. It was like $1,900 because, you know, it takes them for fucking ever to do anything. So they, you know, they, they retroacted it, but she was known to talk out loud. She kind of overshared this information that she mm. had just kind of come into money. She didn't say it outright, but she was kind of known as the bag lady around the unit. So the way these, I had to look up these pictures of, of this housing unit there. It's a collection of three 15 story buildings that wow. are yeah it looks very institutional and then there's like 300 units that are row housing kind of around it um that are also considered the projects but those are like the nicer houses because there are only two stories um they're almost more like townhomes and there was a shuttle that would take them from that project development to the center where a lot of people would get help and like assistance and that sort of thing so she would walk every day to the shuttle and she would ride the shuttle. But she got a new winter coat. But she, because she's known as a bag lady, right, she's never wearing anything nice. She's always kind of like, you know, just wearing things to keep herself warm, you know, that sort of look. So she had a new coat 
And then she also bought a few things for her apartment. So people were noticing, you know, hey, you have money. And I cannot stress how survival mode the people who were living in this apartment unit were. Like they were just in complete survival mode. So they notice things like that, like small changes in their environment where they're like, you know, how's that going to affect me? What can I get off of it? You know, um, but anyway, she didn't, it, it was nothing extravagant. She just, she changed a little bit. You know, she bought herself a fucking winter coat. Like that's some that's pretty smart. I mean, she knows what she needs. And she was known around the unit as Miss May. She was also known to holler and swear at people who walked by her. She was that person who would just, you know, she has, she's schizophrenic. So she's, you know, she's having conversations verbally with people who aren't there. Uh, and she would threaten people with a stick. She would just wave it around and then she'd be <laughs> cursing at people. And so most people thought like, you know, she's just a crazy lady, whatever. Um, which to me, like you would think that that would be an invitation for somebody to like fuck with you. You're waving a stick oh. at someone and you're cursing at them. Like you do that to the wrong person and they're going to tell you about it. Like, right. Absolutely. But she was 5'11", 251 oh, wow. pounds. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's a big lady. She's a big woman. So I think it gave a lot of people pause to be like, do I want to fuck with her? Like, she's crazy and right. she could probably take me out. So not worth right. it. She's bigger than the average woman. Yes. So like I said, she was diagnosed in her uh, 20s with the schizophrenic disorder her mother and father, as well as her seven siblings, believed that her problems were due to her falling out of touch with God. Of course. They were a very devout Baptist family. So they, I mean, they supported her. It wasn't like they were like, oh, you, you're the devil, you know, we're done with you. They prayed on her. They prayed for her. They had, you know, they did everything that they felt was necessary. And they also, they um, encouraged her to get medical help. It's not like they were saying, this is the devil, whatever. They acknowledge that it's a mental illness, but they also acknowledge that the reason that she probably has this mental illness is because she fell off her path with God. So she met a man when she was 27. She had a baby, Vernita, that's her daughter. And Vernita's father left them to fend for themselves. So, I tell you this because this sets Ruthie, this sets her on a path of fucking hating men. Like all men are trash. Yeah, she had a child. Well, honestly, it is so common for women with mental illnesses who are perhaps, you know, below average on the IQ scale even that get in a situation and they don't have any understanding of options or right. they just feel, oh, well, this man is going to help me or whatever. And then they just get <laughs> fucking left with a kid. I mean, it's so you it's disturbingly common. Or no, no, she was with him. Was there? Oh, she was with, she him. Was with okay. the man. Like they were okay. they were boyfriend, girlfriend. I don't think they were oh, okay. married, but they were together. Okay. Um, but then he dipped out. Like, I don't. I mean, honestly, like she was really good when she was on medication. She was pretty good, but she would stop taking her medication, which is common with a lot of people with mental illness because they're taking medication, Absolutely. which makes them feel like shit. And they're like, well, I'm good now. I might as well, you know, I don't want to feel like shit anymore. So it's possible that the man did try and was just like, I can't, I can't do this with you. Like you're crazy. I don't know the whole situation, but she was fully against all men for the rest of her life. Like did not like them, did not like Vernita to be dating or whatever. Cause all men are trash. All men are bad. Um, but when Vernita was little, she was passed off to family members because her mom was often institutionalized because it was kind of this cycle of she was on medication, she was okay, then she would stop her medication, then she would have some sort of episode that would make her family, you know, 
give her 5150 or whatever, like you need to, you're going to be a harm to yourself or someone else or whatever. And so, yeah, that, that, that is what brought her to the government assisted housing is that she couldn't keep a job. She was, you know, she would be going good for a month or two and then she would be institutionalized. Obviously you can't keep a job when you have to leave like that. Cause she was doing things like hotel housekeeping, you know, things where you're completely expendable. Like your boss isn't going to be like, oh, but I liked you. So once you get your mental health in order, come back. Like these people just come and go, you know, with a breeze of the wind. So nobody was really invested in her enough, I I feel. I mean, her daughter tried, but she, so her and her daughter, Vernita, lived in a housing project in the Chicago South Side called Dearborn Homes. And that was the majority of Vernita's childhood. Then she got into some trouble on her own. She was arrested for aggravated battery. And I imagine she's a larger woman as well. Uh, probably has a whole mental issues plus her upbringing and probably a lot of shit going on there. There's probably a lot to unpack. But mm. she spent some time in Cook County Jail in 1983. And this left Vernita's one-year-old child in the care of Ruthie Jesus. May. She had a yeah. child too. Oh. So Ruthie May is looking after her one-year-old grandchild. And at this point, while all of this stress is going on, her house floods because she's in a basement apartment in this the pro- this other project unit. And so the CHA, which is the Chicago Housing Association, they moved her into a new housing unit. And that is when she moved into unit in the Grace Abbott housing unit. Now we kind of have a little bit of her backstory, but... So she's on the 11th floor, right? And there's no balconies. There's no, you know, there's no other way in in and out except like think about a hotel because they're not like apartments how we have out here in California where, you know, everything's open and there's not, you know. Anyway, so 1980, the census was that the average family was getting $4,527 per year. What? That wow. is the average income of people who lived in this area so that's in today's money that's fourteen thousand nine hundred twenty six dollars wow a year wow yikes so the majority of those residents were desperate for money and they would get it by any means they could and a lot of people sold drugs and the gangs were crazy and then there's it's generational Right. I mean, we talk about like systemic racism. Every single person in this time when Ruthie May lived in this building was a a black person. Like so Chicago just basically, you know, under the impression of we're going to um, I mean, I think this happened in like the 50s. We're going to build this housing unit that's low income, but we're going to do it in an area of town that has middle class people so that they can integrate and they can, uh, you know, brush shoulders with the middle class. And hopefully that will bring up the people from the poverty, you know, into that class was the idea. Now, what this really meant was if you move all the low income people into a neighborhood, everybody who can leaves. Right. So that's why it became such a just dilapidated projects area where nobody would nobody nobody's around, you know, like they've they're just there's people who lived in that housing unit who then become an adult and apply and get in to the unit. So there's generations that are living in these units and most of them don't have jobs they're relying on social security so people are there all the time i don't it's it doesn't exist anymore places like this exist obviously (laughs) but this this particular place doesn't exist anymore so anyway the the amount of people with mental illness that was in this building were extremely vulnerable to crime you know obviously but police would rarely investigate anything even if even if somebody did call for help or make a report of robbery, the police were like, like, is it worth it to come down there? Probably not. Right. And no one's going to talk. No one's going to say anything anyway. Right. We don't care. 
So the reason that the mentally ill were targeted at such a a higher rate was because police wouldn't take them seriously due to them being paranoid. Right. Like, okay, you think everybody's taking your shit, lady. You know, (laughs) so when it actually happens and and the the crooks, what am I from 1950? (laughs) (laughs) So when people would go to rob someone, the mentally ill would be a perfect target because. Even if they report it, nobody's going to believe them. And even if it goes so far as going to court, it's so easy for a a public defender to say, hey, this isn't a credible witness. You know, like this isn't. So, yeah. Okay, so now we're getting to the point of why I'm talking about Ruthie Mae McCoy. So April 22nd, 1987, Ruthie makes a call to 911. And this is a quote from the Chicago Reader article. It's Steve Bogira. Bogira. He wrote the original article in 1987. So this is her 911 call. I'm a resident at 1440 West 13th Street, and some people next door are totally tearing this down, you know? She's, like, freaking out. And the dispatcher's like, what are they doing, ma'am? Like, who? <laughs> you know, what do you mean they're tearing shit down? And she says... Oh, and then the dispatcher says they want to break in. Like he's trying to get information. She's not telling him. And then she says, yeah, they throwed the cabinet down. And the dispatcher's like, from where? And then she tells him, I'm in the projects. I'm on the other side. You can you can reach can reach my bathroom. They want to come through my bathroom. And the dispatcher says, all right, ma'am, at what address? So she tells you the address again. 1440 West 13th Street, apartment 1109. The elevator's working. Dispatcher says, 1109. All right. What's your name, ma'am? She says, Ruth McCoy. And then he says, all right, I'll send police. Now, apparently at this time, you could not, on the 911 thing, dispatch police while you're on the line. It's certain, I don't know, whatever this was. He had to break communication with her to send these cops. It could totally be that he just was done talking with her because she wasn't making any sense. I don't know. But he stops communication with her. So this was at 8.45 p.m. There was another call placed to 911 at 9.02. So we're 17 minutes after the original 911 call. A neighbor was walking through the hall and she heard gunshots from Unit 1109. Then at 9.04 p.m., Another person makes a 911 call saying they heard gunshots and screaming from apartment 1109. Police still had not arrived to the scene. So 9.10 p.m. Officers arrive and knock on the door to the apartment 1109. They said they're police. They're, you know, open the door. We're here to help you. Blah, blah, blah. There was no answer. So they called the dispatcher. And asked for him to call the number back, the number that called. So the dispatcher did. And the officers listened to the phone ring in the house. But nobody answered. So they left. Oh, man. Really? They left. Wow. So there's two officers outside Ruthie's door. And two more were downstairs trying to locate a key to the apartment. They located the key for the apartment 1109, and when they got back up, it didn't work. So apparently, you have to apply for a lock change with the CHA, and it can take up to two weeks to get the locks changed. And this happens quite frequently because, mind you, there's two janitors for like I think it's like 3,900 units. Oh my God! I mean, it's absolute bonkers. So, yeah, I think it's th- there's three buildings and there's one janitor per building. So the locks when they, you know, if their purse gets snatched and their house keys are in it and they apply, you know, we want I need to change my locks because somebody out there has my house keys and they have my address because they took my whole damn purse. Like. It could take two weeks. And so a lot of people would just get the locks changed on their own and then they would be required to provide a copy of the key to the office you know so right. that they have it for maintenance or whatever 
you know, bureaucracy. It doesn't happen that way all the time. So it seems like either she changed her locks and did not give the housing commission a copy of the key, which to me, if I'm changing my locks and I'm concerned about somebody getting in and I'm paranoid, I don't want to be giving the office a key. Like I'd rather just not have anybody have my key. Agreed. So I don't know. I don't know what, I don't know why the key was wrong, but it was. So either she did file and it just slipped through the cracks, which is completely possible, or she didn't, which is also completely possible. So the officers are contemplating kicking in the door. At this point, there are a few officers as well as security guards and a janitor. They all look for the key, couldn't find it. 9.48 is when they left. So they were there for, you know, 35 minutes. And they never broke down the door? No. Okay. So the next evening, Deborah Lassley, one of Ruthie May's neighbors who saw Ruthie May every day, two times a day. So this was her neighbor. Ruthie May would knock on her door every time she was leaving in the morning to go to that center and then coming back. So she saw her two times a day, every day. Like the time may be a little off depending on the shuttle or the bus or whatever, but it was, it was very routine. She says, you know, I haven't seen her and that she always stops by and she doesn't. And so she's requesting a well check. So the police turn up again. Now there's six police officers and four security guards from the housing unit. The police were going to break down the door, but the security guards said, you shouldn't do that because the tenant can sue us if you break down their door, you know, and we don't really know what's going on in there and she's crazy and they get fake 911 calls all the time, which are probably real 911 calls. But then when they get down to it in the face of their abuser, they're like, never mind, it was fake, you know. Right. <sighs> but anyway, the security guards are saying, don't do that. It's going to be a mess of paperwork. Like, who the fuck wants to do that? And if you break down the door, then you're going to have to secure it. So you're going to have to have an officer up here. The whole time until we can get a new door for it. You know, somebody's going to have to be stationed out here. And that was enough of pain in the ass for them to be like, no, fine, we're leaving. Wow. <laughs> so the following day. Okay, so now we're in two days after this initial 911 call. Deborah lastly, irritated by the police, rightfully so, called the project office. So at 1 p.m., an official from the projects came to Ruthie's door with a carpenter to drill the lock. So the official from the housing unit is better equipped than the police. So they open the door and Ruthie May McCoy is dead on the floor in her bedroom in a pool of blood. Mm. Okay. Ruthie was shot four times. Uh, Dr. Choi did the um, autopsy, he said that the fourth bullet severed her pulmonary vein and she probably wouldn't have survived a trip to the hospital, even if she went immediately after that shot. But we'll never know. She's definitely not going to make it for two days. Um, so right now we get into the nightmares of this situation. Turns out. Okay. So do you remember when I told you that there was a 911 call of a somebody who was walking by her door. So think of like a long hallway, right? Okay. They're walking and they're hearing the gunshots. They didn't see anybody go into her apartment. They didn't see anything happen. And they're walking by and they're like, there's gunshots. Ruthie's killers came from the fucking medicine cabinet. They pushed in the medicine cabinet from the adjoining Uh. apartment They removed their medicine cabinet and then they pushed in hers and came through the cabinet. And that is why on the 911 Uh, call, she's saying they're they threw the cabinet down or whatever it was. Right. So she's just Uh, chilling in her house and somebody comes through your bathroom like you think you're all fine with your door locked. Right. Oh, that's so creepy. Okay, so it turns out that in a way to save time and money for plumbers in the event of a leak, the people who built the projects made the medicine cabinets in the units removable. So there was six nails 
you know, that held these medicine cabinets in place. And so they were super removable so that they could have easy access to the pipes in the event of a leak. They didn't have to like cut through the drywall and, you know, do all that stuff. But it makes it easy for people to just remove the cabinets and climb from one unit to another. And this was common knowledge in the housing projects. Gangs would rent units side by side so that if somebody came to their door and they they wouldn't be stuck, they could squeeze through. I mean, it's only like a foot and a half, you know, right. like, but they could flee in the event of an emergency or they could throw their cash into the next unit or their drugs if the cops came or, you know, they were, I mean, mo- most criminals are dumb, but not all. Like if that's your life and your livelihood, you get pretty smart. So if you're finding right. out these cabinets, uh, you know, and you're making drug money, then yeah, you could rent a $46 apartment next door. Oh, absolutely. So that's what happened with the the apartment next to Ruthie's is somebody was renting it out and it was just somebody paid the rent, you know, for a few months in advance and people were just using it as a drug den. Like mm. they would just go there and... Um, and also people regularly barricaded their door shut before they went to bed, the bathroom. They would tie the door oh. to like furniture or barricade it and they would use a bucket to go to the bathroom in the in the night. Oh wow. Then, yeah. So like the bath they had wow. to shut the bathroom as well because these and it was mostly like young teenage boys, you know, because grown ass men can't get through right. the doors. <laughs> so it was mostly they would send these little you know, little like gang babies for initiation things like, okay, go do this, go get, you know, whatever, go rob this. So yeah, we know Ruthie wasn't having a schizophrenic episode and the truth was exactly what she was saying. They want to come through the bathroom. I mean, I can imagine though, as a 911 call operator where you're like, what? Like <laughs> who's in your bathroom? What the fuck are you talking about? Like, How is, do you know this person? <laughs> yeah. Right. And the police were known to leave the projects if they got a call and the elevator wasn't working. Huh. They would just leave. Now, originally I thought, well, you're fucking lazy. You know, you can't it's walk up the stairs. I get it. <laughs> but prank calls were super common because they would try and tie up police, like not literally tie them up, but they would just like make calls and, you know, say things, whatever. Um, and the stairs rarely had any working light bulbs because residents would steal them to light their own housing because the janitors would never come and replace their lights. So rather than go out and buy them, they would go to the stairwells because they used oh. the same lights. Or they used so, them to smoke crack or speed. Yeah. So they were never, it was not safe for police to go into the stairwells if it was dark. So that's why they were like, well, if the elevator's not working, like, we're, we're not going to put our lives in danger of somebody jumping us, you know, prank call just to, you know, jump us yeah. in the stairwell. But this is why Ruth specified in her 911 call, the elevator is working because she wanted them to come. Oh, gotcha. Okay. So Edward Turner, 19, was arrested in his row house apartment a couple days after the murder of Ruthie. And then June, so that was April, end of April. So it wasn't until June 9th that they found the other suspect, uh, John Hondras, who was 25. And the police received a tip that he was in a ninth floor apartment of another project's building from, you know, adjacent to Ruthie's building. And they found out that the apartment 1108, which was right next to Ruthie's, which is how they got in through the medicine cabinet, was leased. But the tenants had illegally sublet it which was totally common and the people who were using the apartment were re- related to John Hondras. And because it took them two days to get into Ruthie's apartment, this gave the, the suspect, they went back and they cleaned the whole apartment. Like oh, the yeah. one they used to get in, they took away all the drugs. They did blah, blah, blah. They put, they reinstalled the bathroom mirror in 1108. And here's the creepiest thing. So they did not, they they found Ruthie's cell phone, I believe, with John. 
she had a cell phone in 87? No. Maybe her, her phone. cordless phone? Maybe it was just her phone. Just it a was cordless just, phone? Yeah, it was just her phone. I don't think it was a cordless phone. I think it was her phone. But whatever the case is, so in her unit, there was no phone. But when they, the police had the dispatchers call the phone, and they heard it ring. So either those men were in the apartment at that time, or they came back after and stole more things. Mm. Yeah. That's horrific. I mean, that's not Mm. that long ago. I mean, I was alive. So that's really sad. It's terrible. She did not deserve to go out that way. And how fucking... No. And so I read another article that was more like an opinion piece talking about how, you know, it's possible that even she knew if someone's coming through your bathroom, like, you know, you barricade the bathroom, but she knew she was aware of her mental illness. So it's possible that she thought she was hallucinating in the beginning. You know, maybe she thought she was having like an auditory hallucination that, you know, there was noise coming from her bathroom. So she might have gone to like, check it out. Like is, so their motive was that $1,900 she had gotten because she got the new coat. So the new she had yeah. money. That was the whole motivation behind the murder. I'm surprised well, I got caught. I'm surprised I investigated at all. Did you catch them? I think it was, there was so much. Like media coverage? Like newspaper? I think, yeah. Well, and I think the daughter had a lot to do with it. You know, oh. like, this is insane. I mean, yeah, you can only do that. Got in the apartment. That's ridiculous. I mean, nowadays you just break down your door. You know, I remember in 1991 having the cops break into my house because they thought I had broken into my house from the second story in the middle of daylight because I forgot my key. And some one of my neighbors called the cops, and they came into my door. I mean, they didn't mm-hmm. knock it down, but they came through the back and yeah. just walked around. I mean, granted, I was living in a white middle class neighborhood. And it was broad daylight, but still, like, oh, you can't break down the door. Oh, you can't do this. We can't do that. Like, fuck you. You just didn't want to. I don't think they wanted to. And I, but so here's a here's a flip side to that because that was going through my mind. I mean, that was it. I'm like, this is what could you use to justify? Someone called 911 from this unit. Like, if they don't answer, they're in fucking distress. Right. Exactly. That's more of a red flag to me. Totally. And if you call them and they don't answer the phone, they're fucking, something's happened. And you heard gunshots. Someone called about gunshots in that unit. Yeah. And the only thing that I can think of is perhaps they did get so many prank calls and they thought that maybe it was a scam to where somebody would want you to break in the door and then you'd have to pay for it. I don't I don't know if I believe so much all the prank calls because, like you said, these are drug dealers. These are gang members. How many prank calls want the police to come? Like, I get the distraction, like you're saying. Yeah. But was it really that common to have such... An opinion that, oh, it's probably a prank call, even though you got multiple calls. It wasn't just one. It was from different numbers. Well, that's why I was thinking, I don't think they're prank calls. I think they're saying that they're prank calls. I think it's, you know, perhaps a wife getting battered by her husband and she's calling right. and then and then her husband is right there and she's like, never of mind, course. like prank, bye, Absolutely. you know. Like those sort of things that I that they might just be classifying as pranks because they weren't something that they actually had to go out on the call for, but they were. Yeah. Yeah. I mean the intimidation. Forty six dollars even in the eighties is fucking ridiculously low. Uh huh. I mean, even for the eighties, that's crazy. Well, that's really sad. Bless you, Ruthie May. I hope you found some peace. I know. Oh, but that is. Um, she's the story behind Candyman. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, so Candyman came out in, like, 91, I think, or 93. I don't know. But, yeah, it was her story. That's the mirror, the bathroom mirror thing. Huh. I've not seen it, but I almost watched it yesterday. I watched the trailer, because it was was totally daylight out. Kind of late, I'm not going to lie. It's not one of my favorites. And I was like, I could totally do this. It's from, you know, it's 91. 
it can't have like crazy graphics. I think I'll be okay. And then I watched the trailer and I was like, the guy's creepy looking. Yeah. He looks like the guy from the Finding Cannibals. <laughs> in my opinion. At least it did back in the day when I saw it. But, yeah. It's not Wesley Snipes, is it? I don't remember who he is. I don't know who's Candyman. It's funny um, because he didn't come over across Candyman when I was looking at Haunted Mirrors. Candyman came up. Dude, I can't fuck with those scary movies. They they skewed me out. His name is Tony Todd. He's also in the Final Destination movies. He's a weird, like, um, I want to say, um, like, at the cemetery, he's the creepy guy that comes up and is like, hey, you know, this happened before. And then he just kind of um, disappears. Undertaker? I just want to tell you that I guessed 91 and 93, and the movie came out in 92. Like, yeah. I knew I'd seen what? it when I was a teenager. Um. Jen's gonna watch The Shining tonight for the first time ever, and she's gonna she's gonna let me watch it live so I can see her reactions. No, I'm not. Can you just kind of? No. Uh, can you like text me through it? Oh, this is gonna skeeve you out so bad. I love I'm, it. Oh my god! And you don't even know the worst part is I'm gonna watch it at nighttime. But you'll be with someone, so that's something. Yeah. I haven't even watched The Shining alone, and I've seen it a hundred times. I read the book by myself, and I remember being freaked out of my parents' house when I was a teenager. Um, I read It, and that was a really scary book. It was a great book, but The Shining was epic. So it's a good movie. I mean, Stanley Kubrick is a fucking weird dude anyway, and, you know, it's his take. It's not Stephen King's favorite movie. He didn't like it so much because it kind of changed the book a little bit. They did different things, but it's really creepy, and I'm super excited that you're going to watch it. So we'll we'll ask Jen about it next week. Yeah, if I'm alive. (laughs) (laughs) She's a dive fright. It'll be awesome. I'm excited. All right, well. That's our shit. Yep. Well, we'll have have some good stuff next week. Yes, we will, or we won't. We'll find out. We will find out. It's probably going to be bad stuff because it's a paranormal true crime podcast. That's fair. Be nice. Stay cool if you're out on the West Coast or in the um, southern states. Or everywhere because it's global warming. Yeah. All right. Well, bye. Bye.